Well, the week certainly started out well for Jesus, didn't it? First day on that Sunday as they launched up the new week. He was making his way through Jericho on his pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Counted by a name, but guy by the name of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, I should say. Bartimaeus was blind. Bartimaeus is crying out to Jesus. And Jesus hears his cry. Stops in the midst of the crowd and all the throng. And he, and he pays attention to Bartimaeus. And he heals him. And he gives him his sight back. And his great joy. They go a little further along into Jericho. And they come across a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus is kind of in an odd place. He's up in a tree. Because he's short. He's got money. He's a chief tax collector, which means he's at the top of the pyramid where they were skimming everything off. So he's a wealthy guy, not a well-liked guy, but a wealthy guy. And he's standing up in a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And Jesus sees him. And he calls Zacchaeus down out of a tree. And he says, let's go to your house and eat. And as they gather there, there's mumbling in the crowd about him eating with sinners. And with that, Zacchaeus says, everything I've stolen from people, I'm going to give back. Fourfold. And half of what I got left, I'm going to give off to the poor. For today, salvation has come to this house. It's a great start to the week, isn't it? They continue on in that Sunday, and they make their way up towards Jerusalem, that dangerous, windy road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and they make their way up to a place called the Mount of Olives, or as we just read here, Bethpage. And, they, and Jesus makes preparations for the entry into the capital, into Jerusalem, the holy city. Sends a couple of disciples off to a village that's just kind of off across the way. And he says, when you go in there, you're going to see a colt. You're going to see a donkey and a colt. I want you to grab those and bring them to me. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord has need of it. There's a lot of debate about whether or not Jesus had arranged this in advance or whether it was just divine providence as God was working it out. But the two disciples enter into the village. They see the donkey. They see the colt. They... Begin, they untie him. They begin to walk him out of the village back to Jesus. And somebody says, well, what do you think you're doing? And they say, well, the Lord has need of it. Oh, oh okay. Go ahead. And they take the donkey and the colt off to Jesus. And Jesus climbs up on the colt. And after they have laid their car- garments on its back as a form of saddle, they begin to lay out their garments in front of him. And then when they ran out of clothes, they started putting branches from the tom- palm trees on the road in advance. And he's, and he's entering into Jerusalem. And they're saying, Singing things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Hosanna in the highest. And clearly, this is a messianic claim. The Pharisees know it. The religious leaders who were around know it. They understand what the prophecies say about the Messiah. And this is clearly a claim to be the king of the people of God. And as he enters into Jerusalem, the people celebrate. Things kind of change after that. <laughs> it's a great start. There's a little bump in the road right after that with the cleansing of the temple and things kind of ratchet up a little bit in tension with all of the religious leaders. But by the end of the week, things are 180 degree different. You know, when you stop and you think about it, when you get down to Friday night, it's dusk, it's dark, the Sabbath has started. The only person who witnessed the unfolding of Holy Week and had all of his expectations met was Jesus. You know that? Everybody else got foiled. The crowds... When you're out there on Sunday afternoon and they're crying out, you know, Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they never expected that by Friday, by Thursday actually, by Friday morning, they would have the heart to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. We don't care if he's innocent. Give us Barabbas instead. They, They never expected to arrive at that place. Even some of the disciples, Judas, on that Sunday afternoon as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, did, you ever, did he ever expect that by Friday night he would be contemplating or had already executed 
the choice to commit suicide because he had betrayed his Lord. As best we can tell, he probably betrayed Jesus for good reasons, at least in his own mind and heart. But his expectations for the week weren't fulfilled. Nor were Peter's. As they're walking into Jerusalem and all the shouting is going on, Peter is geared up for the moment. It is the time when we're going to surge to the front. We're going to finally come front and center and kind of take over and, and, and exercise our, you know, Jesus is going to exercise his authority to claim the kingdom, if you will. And Peter is all ready for the battle. It's seen in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's ready to pull out a sword and start the battle himself. But by the end of the day Friday, he's a shattered guy. He's a tortured guy. Because once this once proud fisherman who had all the courage in the world had failed in a place, he had failed in his commitment to being loyal to Christ. The sense of allegiance to him. And as he stood in the courtyard of the high priest waiting for the outcome of the trial, and he got asked by even just a simple slave girl, Aren't you one of the Galileans? You're one of his followers. Peter responded with irreverence and aggressiveness as he chewed the girl out and then fled after his third denial. For nobody did that week go the way it was expected, except for Jesus, right? I mean, what had Jesus been teaching his disciples as they made their way up to Jerusalem? He said, the Son of Man is going to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to to give his life as a ransom for me. You know, he he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he was talking very clearly about how he's going to be offered up and killed and rise again the third day. Everything that Jesus expected happened. So Friday, as they were leading him out to Mount Calvary, he wasn't surprised at all. Because he knew exactly what was going to happen. When you stop and you think about that journey, what was the difference between Jesus and the crowd or Judas or Peter? Wasn't it their expectations? I mean, Jesus knew what to expect. Since before the creation of the world, before the world was spoken into existence, He knew what was going to happen. Before Adam and Eve ever drew their first breath or picked their first piece of fruit in the garden, He knew exactly what was going to happen. And even though there were probably parts of His understanding that were limited because He became like you and I, He became one of us, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He was prepared. And with that, in the midst of all of it, He never lost the spirit of hope, even though the world became a very discouraging place to him. But the rest of them, eh, not so much. Their expectations were just a bit askew, were they not? The crowd, as they were singing Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and talking about the king, you know, understanding that the king was coming to his people riding on a colt, they expected Jesus to change the nation. But Jesus was really there to change them. And because of their expectations... They found themselves on Friday willing to cry out, crucify him, crucify us. Give us Barabbas instead. Same with Judas. Judas, I think, he, he was just getting frustrated with Jesus. I mean, the, the, we don't know exactly what was running through Judas's mind because the Scripture don't tell it, doesn't tell us. But when you put the pieces together, what you really get is that Judas was just, he was just frustrated with the lack of action. You know, so as Sunday comes and they enter into the into Jerusalem, he finally thinks the moment has arrived. You know, especially with the t- cleaning of the temple, Jesus is going to exert his authority and he's going to move to the focal point of the political life and kind of take over. And then things just kind of go quiet, and he goes back to doing his regular teaching. Judas gets a little, little antsy, a little frustrated because Jesus isn't meeting his expectations of power and authority, and so he takes matters into his own hands. He says, if Jesus won't create the moment to exert his authority, I'll do it for him. I'll go find the authorities. I'll lead them to exactly where Jesus is. And then he'll have to stand up and fight. It doesn't work that way. 
And Judas's expectations are so shattered that he finds himself a rope and he ties himself a noose and he hangs himself. Peter, again, Peter's expectations were that what was going to be demanded of him was to prove what a great warrior he was for the kingdom. And that's what would impress Jesus. And so he was ready for the battle, but he wasn't ready for the test. And when the kingdom didn't unfold just the way he expected it. And what was needed was not necessarily courage, but loyalty and humility. Peter failed. Not once, not twice, three times he failed. And he went out into the night crying. All of them had shattered hopes because their expectations were wrong. All except for Jesus. You know, we've been talking about living with hope in a discouraging world as we prepare for Holy Week. And I think we've come to a place where we are ready to make our ascent, our pilgrimage up to the holy place, the Jerusalem in our spiritual journeys. And I was really wrestling with a text this week out of 1 Peter 3. And if you turn, have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Peter 3 with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find the text today on page 1030. You'll find those pew Bibles right underneath the chair in front of you. Or In just a moment, I'm going to read verses 13, 14 through 17 for us. But before we do so, I, I kind of want to share kind of where the Lord's taken me in this journey and and Christina can testify to you this morning. I got up extra early because there was just an uncomfortableness in my spirit as I processed what, what God was really trying to communicate through the Word to me and from me, hopefully, to your hearts as God's Spirit is, it, it works. But, you know, yesterday we had the privilege of being down with Pleasant Street Baptist Church. And we took our men's group down there for our men's breakfast. And it was a great turnout. And the gentleman who shared with us is a missionary with New Tribe Missions. And he was telling us about their journey of well over a decade with a, with a people group, a group of about 3,000 people who live in the Amazon jungle, who have a distinct language all to themselves. And it took them years and years and years and years just to figure out how to communicate with these people and to reduce their language to writing and then be able to interpret the Scripture or translate the Scripture into their language so they could actually begin to teach them. So they stayed among these people for years before they ever began to teach them the Word of God. And he told some funny stories about... Some of the wrong languages they got. They were trying to figure out the word for I'm sorry. You know, and so they demonstrated a, because they love to play soccer, they demonstrated a move, a, a move to them and kind of saying like, you know, acting like they knocked them down. And so, so how, do you, how do you say sorry to him as you lift them up? And, and what the villagers got out of it was he fell down on purpose. So that's what they gave him. So they went around for like two years saying he fell down on purpose, but they were trying to say I'm sorry, you know. So they'd, they'd step on somebody's plant by accident in the forest and they'd say he fell down on purpose, you know, and, and that kind of thing. It was, but there was a question that was asked that was very penetrating, I think. To, at least it penetrated me. And it just kind of, it just gave a whole different window into understanding the passage that I want to process with you this morning. And the question was, what was the spiritual life like of these people before the gospel came? And, 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 and David shared two answers. One was their, their spiritual foundations or their theology, what they understood, was just horrible. It was all about evil spirits who were ready to, to make your life miserable and etc. And so, you know, there was nothing positive, nothing uplifting. It was all based on fear. And everything you tried to do in your life was somehow or another meant to appease the evil spirits so that they wouldn't make your life miserable. That's a great faith, isn't it? But he said they did have one advantage over us. Is that they understood that their spiritual, the spirit world affected everything in their lives. If you couldn't sleep at night, it was because of an evil spirit. 
If your crops didn't grow, it was because of an evil spirit. If your wife couldn't have a child, it was because of an evil spirit. And the list just could go on and on. There was absolutely no separation between everyday life and the spirit world. And it struck me that in that, they have a huge advantage over you and I. Because we live with that distinction all the time. We create that distinction. There's my spirit life. There's my spiritual life. There's my theology that I have over here. And then there's just the rest of the way I do life. And the two of those things don't go together. Theoretically, many of us would say, we know that they're supposed to. But pragmatically, the way we live our lives, we keep them separated. And, and it struck me that that's one of the biggest barriers that we have to being people who live with hope in a discouraging world. It's because we, we have these expectations that God can work in the sanctuary, but he can't work in the cubicle at work. Or he can't work in our bank accounts. Or the list just could go on. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's great to gather together in your life group and talk about all these spiritual things. But when you go home, I mean, the real world happens and you have to react like the... And, and we, we create these barriers. And we, we have this expectation that this hope that we have doesn't really affect. Now, again, theoretically, we'd say for those of us who are faithful followers of Christ, we would say, that's not true. We understand that God is supposed to be everywhere. He's supposed to change everything. We understand He's got the power. I mean, He spoke the world in creation. He stopped the sun. He did all these kinds of things. But when was the last time He did that in my life? That's kind of what runs around in the back of our minds. And so there's a sense in which we just kind of live our lives as though God can't change any of those things. And the passage of Scripture that I have today for you, something's just banging away here. I'm sorry, my thing is bothering me. What is it? Oh, I understand. All right. I had a magnet in my pocket, and it kept trying to grab my, my uh, speaker thing. Now you're totally confused, because I am. See, this is why I have notes in the pulpit, so that when I get distracted, I know exactly where I am. When you and I have incorrect expectations about who we are in Christ, and what God can do, what it means to be a people of faith in, in our everyday lives, when those expectations are wrong, when we have limits on it, it's almost impossible to live with hope in a discouraging world. So if I had a, a title for this morning's sermon to go along with this series of living with hope in a discouraging world, it would be take the limits off. I, you know, I have a, a song on my MP3 player by a, a Christian group that I, run, that I occasionally jog to, and it's a, it's the whole song is about take the limits off. Let's read this passage of Scripture, and let me see if I can't explain to you what's running around in my own heart today. Verse three, chapter 3 of 1 Peter beginning with the 14th verse. Now, Peter here is to start beginning to talk specifically about suffering because one is a child of God. In verse 13, he kind of says, that's not very likely. And who will harm you if you are passionate for what is good? By and large, because God is organized. God is the, the architect. He's the one who initiated human government. By and large, the world, the human government, will, if you will, will encourage and support and affirm good living. But then he goes on in verse 14 and says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect. Not in the way that Peter responded to the little maid, maiden, the maidservant, in the garden, but with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, he, what was finding, what the people were finding 
difficult to understand was here they were as, as God's people. And they were seeking to live their lives for God. They were trying to be good in every sense that God meant, meant it. And their lives were getting harder. And they were discouraged. And Peter offers them some counsel here. Now, the core of it is to set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. He actually borrows a phrase right out of Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. There's a lot of here, this, this whole phrase, do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, comes out of Isaiah, those same two chapters, the whole experience of the people of God being terrified because one of the other nations, along with one of the great powers, was ready to pounce upon them and they were fearful and God is, is saying, do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Just consecrate. Just set apart God as Lord in your heart. Just rest in God. Now, there's a lot here about all of this. And I, I want to make sure we understand the, the foundations of it before I make my application today about our need to take the limits off. When he's talking about here, set aside the Messiah as Lord in our hearts, he's not only talking about our faith experience. It means that you and I need to acknowledge that Jesus is unique in God's activity. Because He is the Son of God. And He is the means of our salvation. It is by grace that we are saved through faith because of the work of Jesus Christ. He has presented that perfect offering to God and paid all of our sin debt. And as we sanctify Him, as we set Him apart as the core aspect of our hearts, we experience that salvation. But there's also an aspect to it in which we set Him aside as the dominant priority in our lives. We sanctify Him as Lord in our hearts and our lives are all about Him. And with that, it gives a foundation to this hope that we're supposed to have an explanation for. And I, I, boy, I'm really tempted to run to our need to really understand our hope and etc. But I'll point you back to a couple of sermons I preached earlier in this series about us really need that our faith, our hope is a cerebral thing. We need to know what we believe. We need to understand what God has done. We need to understand how God explains what He has done for us and who we are in Christ. We need to know that stuff. It's not just a warm fuzzy, but it's a conviction based in reality. But this hope here is almost synonymous with the word faith. It, 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 is, a, it is a reaction in our own lives that's based upon our conviction about who God is, who Jesus is, what God has done, what happens in our lives when we place our faith in Him, and what God is doing in this. It's all of that. That is the foundation of our hope. It's, it's synonymous. So it's, it's this certainty of a reality that we cannot see. You know, that, that you know, in, 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 in the spiritual sense here, he's talking about the fact that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been redeemed. The barrier between us and God has been removed and we become the children of God. We become the friends of God. God becomes present within us. We get protected by the power of God as he talks about in chapter 1. All that stuff happens. And it's our understanding, it's our conviction that that reality is real even though we can't see it and we couldn't put our hand on it. But that conviction, that certainty changes the way that we live our lives. The expectation here from Peter is that our hope our belief in what God has done in our lives changes the way that you and I respond to the difficulties that are in our lives. And his expectation is as, as a child of God, the way that you respond to difficulty will testify to the fact that you have hope in God. It's a marvelous thing when that happens. Even in our own church fellowship, we've had some people who've experienced tremendous hardship. They've lost spouses or children. They've gone through incredible journeys of sickness and we've watched them. And even though they've been wounded, even though they grieve, they've lost, there's still just a tremendous sense of peace 
and assurance with them. What a great testimony to the certainty of hope. But in my ministry, 25 years of pastoring, I've also seen believers who have difficulty comes into their lives and they respond as though they have no hope. They become angry and bitter and, and not just grieving, but they become depressed. They, they just can't do the things of faith anymore. They can't do the, there's all this, and, and there's no difference at all. They, they process their difficulty as though they have no hope. And some of that is because of our expectations of the place, the role of hope, the, the impact of faith in our lives. And I'd like to make just a couple of comments out of this text today related to how you and I need to take the limits off. And allow God to open up and have this impact, this, you know, this great impact so that our expectations are in a line with God's expectations so that when Friday comes, we're not shattered, but we're still whole. One of the things I want to say to you is that our faith, our hope, is supposed to be an everyday thing. I know that's very simple, but it's very profound. Look, look what he says in this text. It says, keeping your conscience clear. That's an everyday thing. Let that sink in for a minute. You, you have one day... When you walk out of character and your conscience is no longer clear anymore. I mean, if anything that our political world has told us, if you've got a skeleton in the closet, somebody's going to find it, right? You know? I mean, if you're a politician, no Facebook, you know, because somebody's going to find it. You know? I mean, you just have to have one bad moment and your, your character can be destroyed or your conscience can become foggy. When we were in Rwanda in the early part of the trip, one of the big news in the, news in the country was that the minister of youth had been photographed in an apartment with a couple of young 20-year-old girls, you know. Now, they weren't, they weren't doing any, The pictures didn't show that they were doing anything inappropriate, but you know how it is, you know. Even in Rwanda, it's politics. Within three days, he had to resign. Who knows what was going on or why, but one moment, character destroyed. One moment, our conscience no longer clear. We've got to keep it. It's an everyday thing. It's not just some days. It's every day. It's, it's, it's every moment. It's every place that we are. Our faith is supposed to be a resource to us to maintain a clear conscience, to give us the strength to live a godly life, a life of hope in every experience. And some of us do not expect that to happen, either theoretically, theologically, or pragmatically. There are those of us who are who are pragmatic atheists. We believe in God, but we don't believe God really can do very much. So when it comes to my work life or my home life or my elite, whatever, I just got to manage on my own. God, God, faith, this hope is a resource to every part of our lives. It's an everyday thing. It's not just a Sunday thing. And if we don't have that expectation, we won't. We won't be a people who live with hope in a discouraging world. Because out of your own worldview, out of my own worldview, if I'm living that way, there will be no God in some places. And where there is no God, there is no hope. So our faith is supposed to be an everyday experience so that we can maintain a clear conscience because there isn't anything in our lives that we're afraid to lay before God to take a look at. Secondly, it's not only an everyday experience. It's supposed to be an every one experience. Now, I mean that in a couple of senses. It's, it's for everyone. Faith, the opportunity for faith, to being a people who can live with hope, is open to all. For whosoever should believe or call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's for everyone. But more than that, in this sense, I, I think I'm talking about here, but the idea of, I know that I'm talking about here, the idea that, that this hope is supposed to be something that we pass on and communicate to everyone. He says, be ready to give an explanation 
to anyone who asks you. Now, there aren't some people in your journey that you're supposed to live your faith out before or testify to your faith of, and others that you're not supposed to. It's supposed to be to everyone. Now, with respect and gentleness, I believe that means that they're, they're, God should be pleased to be a part of the conversation that we're having. And that means even respecting workplace rules and all those kinds of things. But, but there's a way in which our, we're supposed to communicate this hope to everyone. And that, again, becomes an everyday experience. When I was thinking about this and praying through this, God brought back a vivid memory to me. One that I'd like to forget, to be quite honest. You know, it's one of these m- moments where you're just not ready. And, and, and you're, just, you're just not aware. I mean, you know, because... because The the everyones in our worlds are not only the people we live with and the people we work with, but it's the people who stand next to us in the elevator or the people who are in front of us at line at the grocery store or it's the people, the employees of a department store who are standing outside when you pull up outside in your motorcycle. Tell you my little story where I wasn't quite ready for everyone. This is like three, four years ago. We, We were in the building, but we... Um, I don't know if it was the first summer after we were in the building or the second, but um, it was a very, very hot summer day. I was on my motorcycle, and it was one of those days was, that wasn't going well. Everything that's supposed to take 10 minutes was taking like 35, you know, and, you know, and it's just everything's out of kilter, and I'm rushing, and, I, I, and, and I, I needed something for like vacation, Bible school, or whatever, and I went to one place that didn't have it, so, so I went up to the Target in Lemonster to try to find what I needed, you know, and... My motorcycle, it, it, it has this tendency to want to just sink right through the pavement when you put it on a kickstand. So when I pull up, and, you know, I don't know if you know the target up there, but there's a whole area away from the doors where they have this big concrete pad, you know, and nobody even walks on that sidewalk. So I pull in, and I kind of pull up in there, and I, I park my bike, and I'm halfway to the store, and this employee, this young woman, says to me, you can't park that here. And I'm like, I didn't say anything inappropriate, but I certainly was gave the impression that I was annoyed. I will say that. I, I was a little huffy. I said, you sure? Because if I put it out there, it's just going to... She said, no, no, I, I know they don't want you to park it here. So I park it here, these kind of places, all the other stores I go to, because I don't want to... No, 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 you get to... So, you know, I, <sighs> I get on my motorcycle and I move the thing or whatever. And, and you think, I'm never going to see that person again. You know, what difference does it make? Didn't you know that she was the daughter of a family that worshiped with us sometimes? And I didn't recognize her. And that next Sunday, the father came to me and he said, you know, if you ever need anybody to talk to, you know, (laughs) Uh, and they no longer worship with us. They stayed for a little while after that, but maybe it was just me, but I always sensed things were just a little different, you know, and, and to my shame. I didn't expect this hope, this faith, to change how I responded even in my frustration of that day. And I wasn't ready for everyone. And even though I didn't, I, I, I mean, I didn't say any bad words at the girl, I didn't call her any names, I didn't any of those kinds of things, I, I didn't represent Christ well in that moment. It's for everyone. Our expectation is everyone. One last point. It's every way. Now, I have to admit, it'd probably be more accurate to say in all of life, but since I got... <laughs> so, you know, since I have every way, every way, and I've, every day I got every one, I wanted to stay with every way. So that way we start every word with every. But it, it, this idea of the heart, sanctifying Christ as Lord in the heart, that the understanding of, of, the, of the Jews, the understanding of Jesus, is that the heart is the seat of all behavior. There are no boundaries between the private and the public. 
that, that what's in here is eventually going to show out here. And probably no more clearly than when you're frustrated and annoyed or running light or life is just getting really hard and discouraging. So you've got to sanctify Christ in the heart because it's out of the heart that everything else is going to come. And as skilled as you are at some moment, at some time, if Christ isn't sanctified in the heart, if Christ isn't sanctified in every part of who you are, that hope is going to break down and discouragement's going to take over. And you're not going to arrive on, at Friday like Jesus, having fulfilled your mission, but you're going to arrive like Judas and Peter in the crowd with hope that's been shattered. You see, for the Jew, there was no barrier between the inside and the outside, between the internal and the external. And therefore, it wasn't just about managing our behavior on the surface to somehow look like we are a people of hope, but it's actually being transformed on the inside, the place where all of this hope flows from to have our hearts really change. And when you and I try to compartmentalize, when we try to say, well, you know, I'll let God change these few parts, but not the rest of it, or I don't really need hope in those areas. I don't need faith in those parts. I can manage that aspect of my life myself. In fact, I'd rather manage it than God. When we do any of that stuff, when we're limiting God, we're not opening up all of our hearts, the core of who we are, we are people who are destined eventually to live without hope, without real hope in a discouraging world. Sometimes we just have to really get down inside and let God work. So like my lesson at the Target a few summers ago pointed out to me, what is your reaction to discouragement in your life? Say about your expectations of this hope that, was in, that is within you because of Christ. As we take a look, all of us this morning will recognize an opportunity for growth, I think. If not, maybe some of you should be up here preaching instead of me, which probably is true in a lot of different senses, but that's a different story. The challenge, the gift to God, gift from God to us is that you and I really can sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts. And we really can be a people who have a hope that's worth explaining and describing and defining to everyone we meet, no matter what's going on in our lives. It starts with the act of faith, of embracing the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and then taking the limits off to the Lord who is limitless. Take the limits off this morning. Let's pray together. God, thank you that no matter how much we run from you, you're always pursuing after us. And the reason you do so never changes. You love us. And you want us to be a people who live with hope, who know who we are and what we have because of Christ. God, some of us today, myself included, may struggle with understanding just how it is that we need to take the limits off. God, let us start with what we do know how to do, which is to sanctify you, to set you apart as the most important thing in our lives. And that's what we ask to do as a part of our journey to resurrection morning. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.